0: When Thomas Aquinas was a young man, he composed a short treatise on philosophy titled in English On Being in Essence. In this brief work, he lays down profound metaphysical insights into the nature of reality and offers a unique and powerful argument for the existence of God. Unfortunately, most, especially in the Protestant community, have never heard of this argument for God, and those who have heard of it often struggle to understand it so today we're going to take a close look at aquinas's philosophical insights and the proof that he draws from them and to help us through this i'm delighted to be joined today by the man who literally wrote the book on aquinas's argument for god in on being in essence dr gavin kerr gavin welcome to think for christ
1: yeah thanks very much for inviting me on the show very happy to be here you know this is great stuff and you know great that you're going through this so um Looking forward to doing a deep dive into the argument from the De Ente.
0: Would you just mind taking a moment um, to introduce yourself to the Think for, for uh, Christ community?
1: Yeah, yeah. So as you're saying, um, I'm Gavin Kerr, Dr. Gavin Kerr. Um, uh, you can probably tell by the accent I'm Irish. I'm from Northern Ireland, uh, originally from Belfast. So I was born in Belfast in 1983, and uh, I did all of my degrees at Queen's University Belfast, Um, So I did um, an undergraduate BA degree in scholastic philosophy and philosophy. Um, I did a master's um, uh, by research in philosophy. Uh, My master's in research uh, was on the distinction of essence and existence in Aquinas. Uh, And then I did a PhD at Queen's University on the thought Aquinas epistemological thought uh, in dialogue with uh, Kant's transcendental idealism. Uh, and so they were all finished up in 2011. So it took me about 10 years to get all my degrees. Uh, and then I just sort of fell. In, I fell into teaching academia during my PhD years, as many of us academics do. We do a bit of teaching uh, and then we just end up staying or we don't leave the mothership. Um, and So I just stayed in it. And um, yeah, I, I published articles, stuff like that. And then the book on the Dante. You know really just came together around the the early teens you know you 2012 13 you know i've I'd, I'd been publishing articles and this stuff and the book started to come together and sent it off to oxford with the help of Brand davies who gave me some advice and uh yeah it, it was published and you know it, people seem to like it and you know here we are today
0: all right well gavin mm-hmm. one of the things that drew me personally to aquinas early on was mm-hmm. his depth of thought Um, Aquinas more than anyone else in my opinion was able to reach the deepest levels of reality and uncover the most foundational principles of being and it has always seemed to me that with Aquinas we've reached metaphysical bedrock Hmm. now the problem is he is so deep and he's so profound that he can be very difficult to understand so Hmm. Gavin by way of introducing um, our listeners to the thought of Aquinas can you help us understand what was the primary and original contribution that he made to philosophy? How did Aquinas yeah. go beyond the philosophical thought of those that had come before him?
1: Yeah, yeah, sure no problem. So this takes us right back to the the, the beginnings of philosophy and the pre-Socratics and then in Plato and Aristotle because um Depending on how much philosophy uh, your listeners are aware of, there was a a big problem um, in pre-Socratic philosophy known as the one and the many. And this is typified by two pre-Socratic philosophers, uh, Parmenides and Heraclitus the The pre-socratics were concerned with just the the nature of reality. and you could say that they were, you know the originators of a rationalistic investigation of reality. They were a mixture of scientists, philosophers of nature, astronomers, that sort of thing. Um, and one of them, uh, Heraclitus, he sort of conceived of uh, the principle of all reality as being fire. So fire is uh, what is at the heart of all reality. And you can kind of see why he thought that, because if you think about fire, everything is subject to it, nothing can escape the activity of fire, so it seems to be what's most actual, what's most sort of overpowering of everything, so that would be the, Uh, for Heraclitus, you know, it was a neat inference to hold that that is, you know, the constitutive principle of everything. But then when we think about fire, fire is something that, in order to be fire, it has to continually sort of be in flux, be in motion. It's always burning. Once it stops burning, it's ceasing to be fire. Um, so if fire is at the heart of all reality, then reality itself is constituted by flux. And this is brought out in uh, Heraclitus' really famous principle or kind of, you know, little quip that you can't step into the same river twice. You know, the, the waters are constantly flowing. Um, so Heraclitus's point there, if we think of the river, there, there is kind of like a river, there's an identifiable river, the Mississippi, if you're in the States, or, you know, the Ligon, if you're in Belfast, um, and it's flowing, it's constantly moving. But out of that constant flow, we have an identifiable unity. So unity emerges out of the flux. Unity isn't primary, the flux is what's primary. And that's Heraclitus. But then Parmenides comes along, and he holds the being is the principle of all reality. So being is what governs all of reality. And the one thing that we can know about being is that being is and non-being is not. And you can't mix the two of them together. Being is and non-being is not. And with that in place, Parmenides denies the reality of change, denies that change is real. And this is because in order to have change, something has to not be what it becomes and when it becomes something, it has to cease to be what it was. So change requires non being intermingled with being. And for Parmenides, well, that just breaks the principle that being is and non being is not. So change is an illusion. And notice the dichotomy of those two positions. Heraclitus, flux is at the heart of all reality and unity is what emerges. Parmenides, unity is at the heart of all reality and flux is just an appearance, it's not real and we have two mutually opposed positions here um how do we accommodate the insights of both because both are pretty insightful this is where plato and aristotle come along plato and aristotle point out that we can affirm both the unity and the flux of reality we just don't have to affirm that reality is both unified and in flux in the same way So reality or being is an analogous notion to use Aristotle's language or a plurivocal notion. It has many different designations and Plato and Aristotle bring this out in their respective theory of form because for both Plato and Aristotle, form is at the height of all reality or at the heart of all reality. Um, Reality is constituted by form and then depending on how something is related to form, it is more or less real. So for Plato, you have... The abstract forms into which everything participates, ultimately the form of the good, and everything participates in it, and a thing is related to its form the way a shadow is related to its object. It's less real than its object, and it wouldn't exist without its object, and the object is more real than the shadow. So the shadow merely participates in the reality of the object. For Aristotle, form is the constituting principle of matter. It's what organizes the matter to produce the individual physical substance. But for both of them, reality is explicable ultimately in terms of form. That's what reality is explicable in terms of. And that kind of brought us a further step along the way in the philosophical problem. Generally in philosophy, where you get an advance in the problem when with two mutually opposing positions, you can find a third position that accommodates both of them. And that's what we get in Plato and Aristotle. And that was fine as far as it goes. But the Neoplatonists came along. And the Neoplatonists, they're Platonists, so Plato is the man for them, but they're aware of the Aristotelian uh, critique of Plato and his separate forms. And uh, the Neoplatonists, especially in Proclus and Plotinus, they held that there's a principle of reality which is even beyond form, even more fundamental than form. Uh, And this principle of reality beyond form uh, was the one, Okay. So all of reality is unified in the one. And one of the reasons for holding this um, is because every being that you see is a unified being. Um, You don't have a being unless it's unified. So unity seems to be the principle, at the heart of all being, and even form is subject to unity, to the one. So everything participates in the one. Now that insight that there's a principle beyond form to which even form is subject is something that St. Thomas Aquinas and was influenced by. He wouldn't have had a direct knowledge of Plotinus. He did have a knowledge of Proclus later on in his life, uh, whenever Proclus became available, um, but he wouldn't have had a direct knowledge of Plotinus. But Thomas appreciated this notion um, that there needs to be some sort of principle beyond form, because form only explains the what of the thing, what a thing is. It doesn't, you know, explain why there is something rather than nothing, because there's lots of things which don't exist, which have forms, Pegasus has a form. We know what the form of Pegasus is. Uh, we know what the form of a phoenix is. And we know what the form of a human being is. The difference between Pegas- Pegasus and a phoenix is just because these things have a form doesn't mean they exist. Human beings do exist. They have a form, but insofar as they have a form, in, com- in- insofar as in the having of a form, they have that in common with non-existent things. They have to have something else by which they exist, uh, and what we see Thomas defending from his earliest days, and we get this in the De Ente here, which we can get into, mm-hmm. is that um, things that exist have a metaphysical sort of principle beyond even form, which he calls esse, which is just the Latin of to be. They have an active existence without which there would be nothing. So what St. Thomas brings to the table here is the active existence, uh, something which i uh, Plato and Aristotle didn't really envisage they 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 thought if a thing had a form, then of course ipso facto it exists. Um St. Thomas adds the act of existence to the philosophical itinerary. And you kind of mentioned that we we kind of with St. Thomas, we kind of we're reaching metaphysical bedrock here. And this is because if the act of existence, if the you know, existence is the principle by which something it is rather than is not then we can't go beyond that there's nothing beyond existence which can account for the existence of the thing um existence is literally that which distinguishes something um from nothing the neoplatonists thought it was the one uh, and there was something to that but the one isn't exactly the act of existence one can envisage something even beyond unity which accounts for the existence of things. And so Thomas, in latching onto existence, reaches metaphysical bedrock, to, uh, and that's that in which everything participates and in which everything is unified. So I hope that's okay by way of an introduction.
0: Yeah, that was just a great history lesson and great setup here um, for our discussion on on this little book um, by Aquinas on being an mm. essence. So if you wouldn't mind, Gavin, could you just kind of walk us through uh, the principles that Aquinas lays down and then how he draws out an argument forgotten yeah. from
1: those. Yeah, yeah, that's no problem. So we have this little treatise. It's uh, De Ante Essentia On Being in Essence. Thomas writes this when he's in his early 30s. He's the equivalent of a PhD student in theology at the University of Paris, and he's a Dominican at the time. He's a member of the Order of Preachers. So um, any of your listeners, if they don't know what a Dominican is, um, well, a Dominican friar, big white habit with a big black cape, Okay. That's a, that's a Dominican friar. Um, I'm a third order Dominican, so, um, I'm, I'm not a friar. Um, so I don't get the habit. Okay. Um, but He's a uh, Dominican friar and he's living with the other friars at Saint-Jacques. And he's a student um, at Saint-Jacques, which is uh, in Paris. And he's doing his PhD. Now, there are other friars there who are just starting out on the wonderful world of philosophy. And like any student uh, starting out in the wonderful world of philosophy, they're getting confused. They don't understand things. They just don't get it. Uh, And we've all been there and it's all happened to us. So the first thing they do um like every student you know that has ever gone to university they don't go to the master who who would have been albert saint albert well he wasn't a saint then but he was albert then um they wouldn't have gone to the master for some reason students don't go to the lecturer or the master when they're confused they go to the other students okay and the hope that the other students will help them out so the instead of going to the master with whom they live lived albert they weren't going to bother him they went to uh, brother thomas who had completed his philosophy and was doing his PhD in theology. Uh, and so they they need some help from Thomas to understand metaphysics. And Thomas is like, not a problem. He writes the De Ente Edicentia Essentia for them. It's about five or six chapters, depending on which edition that you have, about thirty pages in length. You can read it in an afternoon. It'll take you a few hours. Now you can't understand it in one afternoon, but you can read it <laughs> after Yeah. Um, So he he, he writes this treatise for them where he outlines the principles of metaphysics. Now, just to sort of skip to what we're interested in, one of the issues that he's concerned with is the metaphysical principles of things that exist. And he starts with um, physical things, and he holds that you know, okay, physical things have an essence. And because they're physical things, their essence has to include their form, yes, but also their matter because their matter is just as essential to them as their form is you can't uh, consider the essence of a physical thing without considering not by which it is physical which is its matter taken under you know certain determinate dimensions and thomas is like right fair enough and he goes through all of that but then he gets to the point well what about immaterial things okay <clears throat> we don't need to be committed to the reality of immaterial things but if we're going to give um, a metaphysical count of all reality, that should, in principle, uh, explain immaterial things should they exist, okay? So even if you're a pure-blooded materialist, um, your metaphysics should still be able to accommodate the possibility uh, of non-material things. Otherwise, it just isn't a good metaphysics, okay? So Thomas is, you know, he, he comes upon this sort of issue and it's like, you know, what about immaterial creatures? Let's say angels, all right? Or what, you know, the, the sort of ancient Greeks would have called separate substances. Um, what about them? Um, do they, you know, they have an essence. And, you know, is their essence composed of matter and form? Um, well, if they're immaterial, we want to say that they don't have matter. So they would just be pure forms. But think back to our Plato and Aristotle. If they're just pure forms and they don't have any matter, then they have no potency. They, they don't have any potency or change or variability. So it would seem that they are pure actuality, utterly simple, purely actual. And this is a bit of a problem, um, uh, theologically and metaphysically, because if these immaterial creatures, let, let's just say angels, um, are purely actual, utter, utterly simple, then they're like God. Um, There's no difference between them and God. Because God is utterly simple, has no matter and all the rest. Um, And yet they are creatures, okay? They're not God. They're they're envisaged to be creatures. So we're we're led into this problem. And now, I mean, setting aside this whole issue of angels and God and stuff, the question is, is matter the fundamental principle of potency such that in order to have potency, you have to be material? uh, And without uh, matter, um, you don't have any potency? and correspondingly is form the fundamental principle of actuality such that if you are a pure form you're purely actual that's what thomas is trying to deal with and now there was a very popular position derived from the franciscan school going back to saint augustine i believe um which held that there are two types of matter there's matter which is corporeal which is the three-dimensional stuff that we can touch but there's also incorporeal matter, matter not subject to dimensionality. And this sort of position, uh, it was called universal hylomorphism. I'll just explain what that term means. Hylomorphism means matter form composition, so that um, if you have a substance, it's made up of matter, but it's formed in a certain way to make it that kind of substance. And universal hylomorphism held that Uh, that applies not just to physical corporeal things, but also to non-physical things such as angels. And these angels, they have uh, incorporeal matter, okay, matter which isn't corporeal. Uh, And so to get around this problem of holding that immaterial things would be pure forms and pure actuality. The universal hylomorphosis held that uh, these immaterial creatures, they do have matter, it's just not corporeal matter. Now, Thomas reacts to this now. He's in his early 30s. Uh, he immediately reacts to this, and he rejects it. He he, he believes that it commits us to you know, a plurality of forms, view about mm-hmm. substances, which he rejects. He also thinks it's a bit ad hoc. You know, really, you're kind of just, you know, making up this solution because you've come across a problem. You know, your you're outlook didn't envisage all of this, and you're kind of just trying to deal with it as it comes along. And he also thinks it's a bit just odd to say that immaterial things have matter. Um, And so he rejects it. But in rejecting it, he has to give an account of how it is possible to have immaterial things which aren't pure actuality. And the underlying metaphysical issue here is what is the principle, the ultimate principle of actuality and the ultimate principle of potency? Well, Thomas is going to say, Even though you have these immaterial creatures, let's say, okay, um, they don't have matter, but that doesn't mean that they're pure actuality. They do have an element of potency, a tinge of potentiality to them in the English translation, and that's their potentiality for existence. Their essence that they have stands in potency to an act of existence. So the essence of, say, the angel Michael or Gabriel, that stands in potency to an act of existence by which that creature is something rather than nothing. So you still have potency and composition in the thing, it's just not the potency of matter and form. And again, what you see here is Thomas's Neoplatonism coming out because it means that whilst form is the highest principle within the essence, it structures the matter if the thing has matter, or it constitutes the essence if the thing is immaterial, that form itself stands in potency to something even higher beyond form, which is the act of existence. And that's where Thomas is going in the De de Essentia. That's in chapter four. Mm-hmm. Um, now, that, that articulates the position he wants to defend, but he has to go on to show that there's a distinction between essence and existence in these things. And then from there, from establishing distinction of essence and existence, that's where he arrives at a primary source um, of all existence, which uh, isn't subject to that distinction, which is pure existence itself.
0: Yeah, great. So... <clears throat> Aquinas, again, he's pushing deeper into the nature of reality here, um, because yeah. for for Aristotle, for example, Aristotle stopped at form, correct? Mm-hmm. Because once once yeah. you have the form of something, mm-hmm. um, then you have um, kind of the intelligibility of the thing, you have the yeah. reason for the thing, you have the yeah. explanation for the thing. But Aquinas says, uh-uh, we have to go further, right? Can you yeah. just unpack that a little bit? Why, why Essay? Why this mm-hmm. act of existence?
1: Yeah, yeah. So when Aristotle Aristotle's a scientist, okay, through and through, he's a philosopher of nature, he's a biologist, all of that. When he's looking at things, he's going out into the world, he's seen the things, and it's like, look, what's gonna give us you know, the complete explanation of this thing? Uh, and ultimately that's gonna terminate in form. Aristotle's not asking the question, well, you know, what makes it something rather than nothing? Uh-huh. You know, uh, Aristotle's just sitting and thinking, well, of course the thing exists here. It is here. So granted its existence, you know, wh- how, how do we explain its existence? That's what Aristotle's after. Um, but it's the Neoplatonists um, who come afterward after Aristotle and they're saying, look, this concern with being, it has to extend to all of being to, yeah. You know, Aristotle talks about, you know, the first philosophy being a consideration of being as being. Uh, mm-hmm. The Platonist, the Neoplatonists held, well, if that's the case, then we need to explain why, you know, so there is something rather than nothing. And that's the question which is motivating St. Thomas. Yes, St. Thomas is concerned, you know, with how, how do we investigate being, qua being? And then we give the various categories of being and, you know, the constitutive principles. But the fundamental question in metaphysics for Thomas is why is there something rather than nothing? yes. Mm-hmm. And that and that's what SA is doing. That's what the act of existence is doing. So it's it's very much a neoplatonic approach to the Aristotelian project of first philosophy that he's taken here.
0: Great, great. So we have the act of existence and we have essence. Can you mm-hmm. explain for us a little bit um, Aquinas' conception of essence and then how existence and, and essence work as yeah. principles of being?
1: Yeah. The essence is what the thing is. And it's captured by the definitional content of the thing. So if we have a genuine definition of the thing, that captures the essence. So if we take, you know, say a human being to be a rational animal, um, we define a human being to be an animal that is rational, then the essence of a human is rational animality. That's what makes it a human as opposed to a different type of animal, a canine animal, let's say. So that, that's what essence is. It, it's what the thing is, and it constitutes it as the kind of thing that it is. And for Thomas, if if it's a material thing, the essence then is basically just the unity of the things matter and form. That's what the essence is. Uh, if it's an immaterial thing, it's its form alone. So the essence of uh, St. Michael, let's say, is just the particular angelic form um, that he has or that he That's That's what essence is. Essay then is that metaphysical principle of the thing, um, without which it would be nothing. Okay. So it, it, it makes, you know, that thing with an essence, something rather than nothing. So you have the existent, the thing that exists, it has an essence and it exists as an existent because it has this active existence.
0: Great. Great. Yeah. So essence kind of describes the, what, what a thing mm-hmm. is and mm-hmm. esse accounts for why it is for why it exists.
1: Yeah, yeah. Essay is what makes it exist, and I'm right. glad you said it accounts for why it exists. Because a lot of people say that essence accounts for the what, and essay accounts for the that it exists, <clears throat> and it's a bit of a bugbear of mine. It's very technical sort of stuff, but um, I'm one of those Thomists that hold that essay isn't c- doesn't correlate with the that of the thing's existence, but it does account, as you just said, for why a thing exists.
0: Right, because um, because at the end of the day. Essay is an act, mm-hmm.
1: right? It's an yeah.
0: act of existence.
1: Yeah, that's it. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. Go on. Yeah,
0: yeah. So I was just going to say. So just trying to dig around these these principles. So um, why don't we proceed then in mm-hmm. um, Aquinas' thinking here in mm-hmm. on being an essence and and mm-hmm. kind of unpack where he goes from here and how mm-hmm. he develops this argument for the existence of God.
1: Yeah, brilliant. So. Um... We're in chapter four of the De Ente, in most editions of the De Ante, this comes up in chapter four. Um, <clears throat> now, Aquinas has articulated that um, he rejects universal hylomorphism, and he holds that um, everything stands in potency to an active existence. Okay, well, all creatures anyway, stand in potency to an active existence. But he needs to demonstrate this. He needs to prove that there's a distinction between essence and existence. He can't just, you know, suggest an alternative account and say, well, look, mine's is better. He needs to actually give a proof for it, <clears throat> and that's the cool thing about Thomas. You always get a proof for a position, you know, that he he's you know adopting, and it's always, almost always from metaphysics. Metaphysics always permeates into everything um, with St. Thomas, and in fact, if I could just you know make a little bit of a side there, and it's something that you sort of brought up that when we're getting to this argument for God's existence, Thomas is just digging deep into the nature of reality. So really what his project is, is to try and think about what the nature of being is. And as he's doing that, he comes to a proof of God's existence, but he doesn't set out that way. He doesn't yeah. set out to say, you know, I'm going to prove God. It's, well, this is the way being is, yada, yada, That's yada. what makes it so
0: cool, I think, in hmm. in this on being in essence. It's just like, he's just, like I said, he's just digging around for these principles of being. And then hmm. once he has them, it's like, oh, and these principles actually imply the existence of God. I think that's really cool about this little book.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And that's the important thing to understand about St. Thomas is that God's existence, it's a conclusion of metaphysics. He's not setting out to do apologetics of, you know, like, right, here's an argument for God's Mm. existence. Any argument, let's get it. No, he's, Doing metaphysics and then the proof for God's existence comes in later, in the same way that the proof for the causal principle comes in or the proof for hylomorphism comes in, God's existence is another aspect of metaphysics and not just an apologetical endeavor that a lot of contemporary theistic philosophers engage in. Right, right, yeah. But anyway, so on to the distinction of essence and existence. So he needs to establish that essence and existence are distinct. And there are uh, this argument proceeds in three stages. There's the first stage of argumentation where Thomas appeals to how we think about being in essence, uh, and it's called the intellectus essentiae stage. Um, the Latin there is the the understanding of essence argument. Then there's a stage after that where Thomas considers the different types of multiplication, how things are multiplied. And then in the third stage, you have the proof for the existence of God proper. And for each of those stages, there's been a a Thomistic commentator who has said that's the stage at which Thomas Mm -hmm. establishes real distinction of essence and existence. Um, Now, no commentator disagrees You know that uh, Thomas actually does establish a real distinction. They just disagree where he does it. So yeah, they all agree that he does do it somewhere. It's just where. So that that disagreement among scholars is a very sort of niche Thomistic disagreement. I'm going to focus on the first two stages. The reason being is that the third stage, it's the proof for God's existence proper. And it, to my, on my reading and on the reading of several others, um, the proof of God's existence presupposes real distinction of essence and existence. Uh, and if it presupposes it, then it can't establish it. Um for any of the listeners who are interested, it's Joseph Owens who defends real distinction at stage three that you only have real distinction after you've proved proven God's existence. But I'm gonna focus on stages one and two, and they sort of lead us up then to the proof of God stage three. Great. Is that okay? Is that good? Sounds great. Yeah, brilliant. So the first stage, the intellectus essentially stage. Um, Thomas says, Well, look, consider how we think about being in essence, okay? And he states that whatever doesn't enter into the understanding of an essence or a quiddity, quiddity is just, you know, use that interchangeably for essence. It just means the whatness of the thing. Whatever doesn't enter into our understanding of an essence or a quiddity is distinct from that essence and composed with it from without. Now we're assuming a true a veritical understanding here. Okay, so if we have a true understanding of an essence or quiddity and there's something that doesn't enter into that understanding it's distinct from the essence or quiddity understood and composed with it from without. And Thomas says, the reason for this is because in order to to understand an essence, you need to understand the parts of an essence. Okay? And so if you've understood the essence, you've understood its parts. And if there's some feature, okay, um, that doesn't enter into that understanding, it's not a part of that essence. Okay? Uh, So uh, he says, you know, uh, well, he goes on and he says, but look, you can understand an essence or a quiddity without understanding that it exists. So, for instance, you can understand what a phoenix is and what a man is. OK, a rational animal for a man, mm-hmm. uh, a phoenix, you know, a bird that rises from the ashes of its own death. Um, You can understand the essences of these things, but that doesn't mean that they exist. Understanding that they exist is something different. Therefore, Thomas concludes essence and existence are distinct in things unless there's something whose essence is identical to its existence. And that's the first stage. Okay, so that, that that's the first stage of argumentation. Um, now, just on the scholarly issue, there are some authors who hold that at that stage, Thomas has established that essence and existence are distinct in real things. So if you go out into the world and find a real thing... Um, there's a distinction between essence and existence in it. And so Edward Fieser holds that position. Um, I believe that Anthony Kenny holds that position. Stephen Long holds that position. And there's a number of reputable scholars who think that's where Thomas not only succeeds in establishing, but also intended to establish real distinction of essence and existence. I hold that at that stage, Thomas has only established that essence and existence are distinct in our thinking of these mm-hmm. things. Mm-hmm. So, what Thomas is referring to there is how we think about these right. things he hasn't shown that they're distinct in reality can,
0: can i can I interject a technical question here? um yeah do you think so <clears throat> I follow you here on interpreting Aquinas in this in this work, and I agree yeah um however, would you say is there like when I think of a uh, phaser, he gives mm. distinct arguments yeah for how we can identify a real distinction between? Uh, Mm -hmm. essence and existence. Do you think there are ways that you could come to that distinction in things wholly apart from um, interpreting what's happening in in Aquinas in this particular work? Or do you think Mm -hmm. that this is the only way, what Aquinas does here, is the only way to get to the real distinction?
1: Yeah, so I mean, I think the the more I've thought about this, the more I think that if we presuppose that um, in our thinking about uh, the essence and existence of a thing if we have within our sites um a, a real subsistent thing and we're forming you know veridical understandings of that real subsistent thing um then i think you can affirm of that thing that essence and existence are distinct Now, I don't think that amounts to a distinction of essence and existence as a metaphysical, as a conclusion of metaphysics, that it's a metaphysical teaching that they're distinct. But I think you could infer that in this thing before you, essence and existence are distinct. I think that's correct.
0: Do you you think you can get to a real distinction there or just a conceptual distinction?
1: A real distinction in that individual if we presuppose that... um, our understandings are focused on a real individual
0: okay interesting hmm. okay yeah
1: but i don't think that generalizes to a conclusion of metaphysics that it's a metaphysical truth that things are like that
0: ah uh, okay yeah
1: so i think at most what fees and long established is that if you have a real thing in front of you then only in that thing do you have real distinction but that doesn't generalize into the kind of metaphysical conclusion that thomas needs
0: i see okay yeah but in, in any case aquinas follows a different path so um yeah we can get mm. back to that
1: yeah well so i think at this stage uh, and i'm not alone uh, john whipple uh, joseph owens the, they both hold that uh, at this stage all we've established is a conceptual distinction that how we think about essence is different from how we think about the existence of the thing but that doesn't mean that essence and existence are distinct in the thing itself so we can think about the morning star and the evening star they're distinct in sense but identical in reference they both refer to the planet venus um or you can think of the breakfast table and the dinner table both distinct in sense but if you're like me it's the same table it's one and the same thing in reality yeah so myself whipple and owens um we hold that it's at a later stage that um essence and existence are established as real distinct, really distinct and if i may just point out um so uh it's at stage two that I think the real distinction is established. John Whipple also. Um, you know, he holds that uh, I'm following John Whipple on this. Uh he holds that uh, it's at stage two that real distinction is established. And uh, just uh in the last few days, uh Professor John Whipple, he passed away there just oh uh, yesterday, uh September eleventh. Oh, that's a shame passed away. Yeah. One of the one of, one of the greatest exegetes and, you know, commentators on Aquinas' metaphysics of the twentieth and twenty first century. Yeah, I love um, Whipple yeah so he passed away just yesterday Hmm. there so yeah so just yeah so it's interesting that we're recording today
0: yeah really really yeah what was the name of his um really thick book um i have it up in my library but i can't remember
1: the metaphysical Uh, thought of thomas aquinas The
0: metaphysical thought of thomas aquinas just a tour de force i mean anyone interested in aquinas has to get that book it is such an excellent work
1: yeah published in 2000 by cua and unsurpassed i think i agree no it's the textbook for Aquinas's metaphysics. I think, yeah, definitely. A- any of the listeners listening should really get that book. Yeah. Anyway, so we're at stage two. And um, so let's just say conceptual distinction is stage one. Essence and existence are distinct in how we think about them. We still need to establish that in real things, it's a metaphysical truth that in such things, essence and existence are distinct. So what does Thomas do at stage two? Well, you'll remember at the end of stage one, he says essence and existence are distinct unless there's something whose essence is identical to its existence. And Thomas says, let's consider that as a hypothetical. So let's consider hypothetically something whose essence is its existence. We're not committed to its reality, but just hypothetically, what would it be like for that? Okay, Um, something whose essence is its existence. What would that be like? And what Thomas argues is that it would be one and unique. It would be utterly unique. It wouldn't just be one as in there's only one such thing, but there could be more. It would be such that there could at most only be one such thing. So it would be utterly unique. and we'll we'll see what Thomas does with that. Um, but uh, St. Thomas, he holds that uh, something whose essence is its existence, if it exists, would be completely unique. Well, why? Uh, well, Thomas takes us through the different ways in which things could be multiplied. And uh, I really have to credit Whipple with, you know, focusing on, on this argument, because I think it's a real ingenious argument for real distinction, which wasn't really had wasn't really brought out in the literature until Whipple came along. Mm. Um, and so Thomas holds uh, at this stage. Now, remember, Thomas is in his early 30s. He's yeah. like, you know, 30 to 32 years old here. But Thomas... um. He outlines the different types of multiplication, how things could be multiplied. He says, well, look, first of all, you can multiply things the way a genus is multiplied into its species. So if you take a genus, some sort of generic, you know, general notion like animal, it's multiplied into its various species by adding to it from without. So we can differentiate or specify the genus animal by adding to it rationality, canine entity, feline And by adding these differentiating features, we get the species, rational animal, canine animal, feline animal, humans, dogs, cats. So in order to multiply a genus into its species, you have to add something from outside the genus which specifies it. And Thomas holds, well, look, something whose essence is its existence couldn't be multiplied in this way. Because think about it, if, you know, we're thinking of the genus Something whose essence is its existence, it's pure existence. In order to multiply it like a genus, you have to take something from outside of existence and add it to it. But what exists outside of existence? Nothing. Nothing. Yeah. So there's nothing outside of it which could be added to it, which could specify it. So it can be it can't be multiplied in this generic kind of way. And Thomas is like, right, okay, what's next? And he says, Well, look, we can multiply species. In the individual members of the species by adding matter. So you take uh, the species human rational animality. Okay, now every human has rational animality in common. So what distinguishes individual humans? Well, Thomas says that uh, it's matter, it's distinct chunks of matter. My rational animality is embedded in my, uh, you know, chunk of matter, which let's just say originated 12th of April, 1983. Um, And that's distinct from your chunk of matter, which originated at a different period. Uh, And those two matters can't occupy the same place at the same time. So we are individuals of that species because of those chunks of matter. So maybe something which is pure existence could be multiplied in that way. And Thomas says, well, no. Because not only would you have to add something to it from outside of it, which we've already seen we can't do, but but it would also mean that uh, such a thing would subsist in its matter. Uh, and the problem with that is that something whose essence is its existence doesn't subsist in its matter. It subsists in itself because its essence is its existence. It subsists in what it is, not in something other than it which is its matter. So something whose essence is its existence couldn't be multiplied materially. And then he, he outlines a third mode of multiplication, which he, he doesn't actually consider. The third way in which something could be multiplied is if is if you have something which is separate and absolute and other things come to participate in it. And he gives the example of a separate source of heat, let's say a fire, um, to which everything draws near in order to participate in its heat. Its heat is multiplied in that way. Now, it's obvious why Thomas doesn't consider that mode of multiplication, because the thing, the separate source, the absolute source is not actually multiplied in itself. You know, you never get more than one of them. You already have multiple things which come to draw upon the actuality of that thing. Think of the sun and participating in the light of the sun. Everything which is illuminated doesn't multiply the sun. They just fall under the illumination of the sun. And in fact, that that's how Thomas is going to envisage creatures in a relationship to God um but thomas doesn't consider that third mode of multiplication because it doesn't actually multiply the thing and with that thomas holds that something whose essence is its existence could not be multiplied in any way and just before we finish up with that um one needs to ask well is he exhaustive there are are, are there other modes of hmm. multiplication you know that we could consider he's really only considered two which are applicable maybe there's more and so one of the things that i sort of did in my 2015 book was to sort of try to get behind thomas's argument and ask what are the principles driving it and it seems that in all those modes of multiplication in order for a thing to be multiplied it has to be subject to something which multiplies it there's some sort of principle of multiplication which multiplies the thing right okay so it exercises some sort of actuality on the thing and multiplies right. it so the thing to be multiplied stands in potency to a principle yeah. of multiplication Now if we have something which is pure existence, in order to be multiplied, it has to stand as subject to something other than it, which would multiply it. But if it's pure existence, there's nothing other than it to which it stands as subject. And so the, the, the principle behind Thomas's reasoning here that if you have something which is pure existence, there's nothing other than it which could multiply it in any way. Hence it resists any possible mode of multiplication. And so in itself, it is one and utterly unique, if it exists. So it it's a conceptual truth about something which is pure existence, something whose essence is its existence, that it's one and utterly unique. You couldn't have more than one of them. Now, Thomas is going to take us to the real distinction of essence and existence, but we can stop there for a minute if we need to unpack that.
0: Great. Let me see if I'm following here. So, <clears throat> so in thinking about angels and thinking about immaterial creatures, and trying to still um, understand these beings in in some way in potency, because we don't Mm -hmm. want to say they're purely actual. Aquinas comes through his philosophical reasoning to two fundamental principles in a thing, essence Mm -hmm. and existence. And we don't need any kind of matter for angels because we have essence now as Mm -hmm. um, the principle of potentiality, and we have essay or the act of Mm -hmm. existence as the principle actuality whereas in aristotelianism it's it's matter and form that are playing those principles aquinas pushes it deeper but at this point um aquinas Mm -hmm. just has a conceptual distinction between these Mm -hmm. things between Mm -hmm. these principles and a thing so then he's the next stage he he conceptualizes what it would be like for a being to exist that was just pure existence itself where there was no distinction no conceptual distinction between um Existence and essence. And that's yes. is that's where we've arrived.
1: Yes. Yeah. And so here's the really cool thing that Thomas does. So if it is a conceptual truth about something uh whose essence is his existence, that it could could only be one, there couldn't be more than one of them, it would be utterly unique, then it is impossible to be that thing without being one and unique. Okay. Yes. yes. So just yeah. So uh, and bear in mind, it's a conceptual truth about something whose essence is its existence. We're dealing with conceptual truths here. Uh-huh. My interp- my interpretation, Whipple's interpretation, the first stage is dealing with, you know, conceptual issues. The second stage is remaining with conceptual issues. So there's a kind of, you know, a nice unity there that we're still at the conceptual and sphere. For, and have-
0: for anybody who knows Aquinas, mm-hmm. uh, anyone listening who knows Aquinas, they'll know that Aquinas... Uh, will not go from the conceptual to the actual. We know that, mm-hmm. even if it's not spelled out exactly here in this in this passage in On Being mm-hmm. in Essence, we know that because he rejects the ontological argument.
1: Yeah. Right? yeah.
0: Which was exactly the attempt to go from a conceptualization of the mm-hmm. nature and definition of God to his actual existence. And Aquinas rejects that on yeah. the principle that you can't go from thought to things.
1: Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. And indeed, he critiques the Platonists for making the same sort of move. He says that, yeah, the Platonists jumped from the way forms exist in the mind to saying that's how they exist in reality. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, it's it's a criticism he levels at the Platonists. So, you know, Thomas isn't going to jump from some sort of positive mental conception to a real conception. So what he does here is that he holds, well, look, if it's a conceptual truth about something whose essence is its existence, that it would be one and unique then it would be po- impossible to be that thing and not be one and unique. Right. Okay. Now we're talking of the language of impossibility here. It would be impossible to be something whose essence is its existence and not be one and unique. So it's not possible for there to exist anything in reality whose essence is its existence, which isn't one and unique. That conceptual impossibility translates into a real impossibility. I see. That it, mm-hmm. That is a move that Thomas and many others are going to make, that if you can so show that something is in itself impossible, it's really impossible. Mm-hmm. Okay, it's not it's not a possibility, uh, because possibility is a necessary but not sufficient condition for actuality. Um, well, look, armed with this, Thomas says, well, look, if we have multiple beings, then they are not something whose essence is its existence. Why? Because something whose essence is its existence is one and unique. That's a con- It's conceptually impossible for it not to be one and unique. So if we have things which are multiple, they are not something whose essence is its existence. And if they're not so- things in which essence and existence are identical, there are things in which essence and existence are distinct. So if we grant that there are real multiple beings, which we do because we're realists, mm-hmm. um, then we know at least that they are not that hypothetical being whose essence is its existence. There may be other things, whatever they are, we can just investigate that, but they are at least not that thing whose essence is its existence because they're not one and unique. So given the reality of multiplicity, we can then infer from the fact that such things aren't things in which essence and existence are identical. They are things in which essence and existence are distinct. And it's at that stage that I and Whipple hold that the real distinction is established because we now have real things in our sights of which we can affirm that their essence and their existence uh, are distinct.
0: Excellent. So Mm. if, hypothetically, um, you have a being whose essence and existence are are identical, a conceptual analysis shows you that there can only be one, but then Mm. we look around and we see that there are a multitude of beings, and therefore we know that in this multitude of beings, they mm. have to uh, consist of these fundamental principles that are really distinct of essence and existence excellent so that's it yeah we've got the real distinction let's yep. make the argument for god
1: yeah brilliant and i whenever the more i read this um the, the more i'm just sitting and thinking you know what was i doing in my early 30s yeah, you know?
0: <laughs> yeah really
1: <laughs> yeah and and what must what must saint thomas's conference at saint Jacques who were finding metaphysics at the University of Paris so difficult that they ended up getting this out of St. Thomas. What was being taught at Paris, you know, that Thomas had yeah, to write this? Right. This was, e- this was easier to understand for them. Than what Aquinas, they were grew up,
0: Aquinas grew up in an age where there was no social media and no video games, right?
1: Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so, right, let's get to the next stage. So we, we've established a real distinction between essence and existence. And Thomas is like, right, now let's think about things in which essence and existence are distinct. How are essence and existence related to each other in the thing? And Thomas holds, well, look, if you've got things and they have, you know, a certain feature or characteristic about them, they either have that characteristic as a result of their intrinsic nature or, or some intrinsic principle, or as a result of some extrinsic principle. So um the, the example that he gives is risability, the ability to laugh. Human beings are able to laugh because of their intrinsic nature, because they're rational animals. Um, So they're able to entertain humor, get a joke because of their rationality. They can see that something is funny. So that's a feature that they have, which is derived from their intrinsic nature. But then he says, you know, think about the the illumination of the atmosphere by the sun. The atmosphere is illuminated by the sun, not through anything intrinsic to the atmosphere. It's not self-illuminating. It requires some principle extrinsic to the atmosphere, which is the light from the sun. Thomas's point here then is that you know, well, look, we have this situation. A thing has some sort of characteristic either as a result of its intrinsic nature or as a result of some extrinsic principle. Well, what about things which have existence, but you know essence and existence are distinct? Well, we know that they can't have existence because as a result of their intrinsic nature, their essence, because we've just shown that essence and existence are distinct. So they need to have existence from some extrinsic principle in the way that, you know, the atmosphere is illuminated by the sun. Um, well, Thomas thinks, well, that's interesting. That means that, you know, there's some sort of extrinsic principle by means of which I and you and other things which are multiple have exist the existence to which we are not identical. And that then sets up a causal chain, causal regress. And Thomas holds, and we'll get into this argumentation, that um, that causal regress terminates in some sort of primary source of existence, which isn't something in which essence and existence are identical, but is something in which essence and existence, uh, or sorry, which isn't something in which essence and existence are distinct, but something in which essence and existence are identical. And so it all is going to turn, it's all going to turn in this analysis of that causal series uh, that Thomas considers and frustratingly he doesn't consider it <laughs> in the De Ante. Now yeah. he 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 gives a remark which relates it to what he can he he establishes in other works. And so you, you you sort of need to take what he's written in other works and sort of line it up with that remark that he gives. But frustratingly he doesn't spell this out in the De Ante. Do
0: you do you think Aquinas thought that to his audience it was just obvious
1: I think given that these people were, you know, doing um, philosophy at the University of Paris, yeah. that they would, they would have been familiar with the similar reasoning that you find in Aristotle Metaphysics Book 2, Aristotle Metaphysics Book 12, and Aristotle's Physics Book 8, okay. I think. Yeah. I, I know the metaphysics better than the physics, but I think it's Book 8. Um, so that, I think, you know, that in this passing remark, his readers would have been like, oh, well, that's what he's referring to there Uh Mm -hmm. and then it's it it's in later other works that thomas um you know digs deep into this right yeah so um should we consider causal series let's do it yeah yeah Yeah. so um this this was one of my earliest articles uh, that i wrote um it's the distinction between what are called per se and per accidents causal series and the metaphysics of per se and per accidents causal series i wrote an article i think it was in 2012 it was titled, Essentially Ordered Series Reconsidered, published in the American Catholic Phil Quarterly, uh, and then republished in the Collected Articles uh, volume. Um, and in it, I sort of art- articulate Aquinas' metaphysics of per se causal series. And then this is the material that I used to you know, buttress his reasoning in the Ente here. So we'll dive into the difference between these two causal series. We'll see why one of them has to terminate in a primary and the other doesn't. And then we'll get into how that relates to the de-entity argument. Does that sound cool?
0: That sounds great.
1: Brilliant. So we can easily envisage chains of causal series. You know, one cause causes an effect, and that causes something, and that causes something, so on, so on, in either direction. So it's very easy for us to set up causal chains. But the medievals, following the uh, Islamic philosophers, particularly Avicenna, following Aristotle and that, you know, tradition, noted that there are two different kinds of causal series, two different types of causal series. There is one type of causal series in which the members of the series possess the causality of the series, the causal power, the causal actuality of the series intrinsically in themselves. So each member of the series has the causal power of the series in virtue of what it is. And then there's another type of causal series in which the members don't possess the causality, the causal power of the series intrinsically, okay? They don't possess it in virtue of what they are. So the very causality which is in the series needs some sort of cause in that second type of causal series. And the best way to think our way into this is to consider two different examples. So the first type of causal series, the sort of series in which the members possess the causality of the series essentially, or, or in virtue of what they are, that's called an accidentally ordered or a per accidents causal series. And the example that Thomas typically gives is a series of fathers producing sons. So you imagine Peter produces James and James produces John, okay? So Peter exercises his causality for paternity and he fathers uh, James. So we have James. And then James grows up, exercises his causality of paternity. He produces John. And then John goes on and so forth and so on. And we can go back and back and back. We can consider Peter's father and so on and so forth. But notice something about that series. The particular causality involved is that of paternity, fathering, begetting. They exercise the causality of paternity to produce their sons. And each member of the series has that causality, not because of their previous members, but because of what they are, okay? So why is it that Peter is able to father James? It's not because of his father. It's because Peter's a grown man who is biologically capable of doing what needs to be done to father a child, okay? Peter's father is dead by that point. Given that his father's not on the scene, Peter doesn't need him in order to father his own son. So usually when I teach this to my students, I say, imagine Peter fathers James, okay, James is born. Okay, uh, wife is recovering in the hospital. You know the child is all there and everything. And Peter goes out to wet the baby's head. Now, are you familiar with that uh, statement, wetting the baby's head?
0: I was just going to say, I have no idea what you're talking about there.
1: <laughs> so it's not baptism, or you could call it an Irish baptism. Uh, in Ireland, <laughs> when we talk about when we talk about wetting the baby's head, it means we go out and um, celebrate by means of certain beverages. Um, you ah. know the birth. Of our new child.
0: Yeah. I see, yeah.
1: So uh, you could call that an Irish baptism, but uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So wetting the baby's head, you go out for your whiskeys and your Guinness and stuff to celebrate it. You know, James has just been born. Now, I imagine Peter does that. You know, James is all tucked up in the hospital. You know, wife is happy and everything. He goes to wet the baby's head. Tragically dies. Okay. Goes out for drinks and dies that night. All right. Okay. That's a tragedy. Will that stop James from following his own child? No, James can grow up and follow his own child because he's a biologically functioning male. So he has the causality of paternity in himself. He doesn't need Peter's help. He doesn't need Peter's help to follow his own son.
0: So he has the built in causal power.
1: Exactly. He has this causal power intrinsically in virtue of what he is. And he can follow John. Okay. Mm -hmm. Like Peter is John's grandson or Peter is John's grandfather. But Peter's dead. So Peter doesn't Peter within this line of causality doesn't play a causal role with regard to John. And then if John has a child, it's only John who plays that causal role in fathering. (laughs) So in Per Accident's causal series, causality is discharged in the immediately succeeding member of the series. OK, Um, you don't need, you know, to depend on the earlier members in order to have the present members. OK, the earlier members can pass out, but the present members can remain. And the series remains because as long as you have a present member, you have that causality in that present member intrinsically. Yep. And so um, Aquinas and the medievals, you know, more generally, uh, more or less hailed that see these kinds of causal series, they don't need a primary cause you can go back as far as you want without a beginning so long as you know you have a father produces a son he dies produces a son he dies and so on and so on as long as you keep having successive members you don't need a first in this series there's no there's no issue there so per accidents causal series can be infinite and and st thomas holds this per accidents causal series can be infinite But now we move to the second type of causal series, per se, or essentially ordered causal series, and they're contrasted with the father-son series, with the per causal series. In these types of series, the members of the series don't possess the causality in themselves, or per se. They don't have that causal power in themselves. Peter, James, and John have the causality of begetting or paternity in themselves. Mm -hmm. But in per se series the members don't have the causality of the series in themselves. Common example is the mental agent moves his hands to move the stick to move the stone. So the hands, stick, and stone, they don't have the causality of motion in themselves. Hands can be hands, sticks, sticks, and stones, stones without moving, okay? Mm -hmm. They don't need to move in order to be hands, sticks, and stones. They can be moved, but they don't have motion essentially, so, were there not a cause for that causality that they have, they would be immobile. They wouldn't move. And so, what is the cause of that causality? It's the mental agent. A mental agent, being rational, is just something which has in itself the ability to engage in action. Okay. Mm-hmm. Agents can engage in action and that can induce motion to the hand, the stick, and the stone. But if the mental agent doesn't induce motion to the hand, the stick, and the stone, In the hand, and the stick, and the stone, they don't move. So I usually, I, I give the example of the golf player on the golf course, okay? He goes to the golf course, swings the club, hits the ball, and we're good. He induces motion to his hands, to the club, and the ball, and you have that action of the ball being moved. But imagine he goes to swing, he has some sort of irreparable brain damage, and he can't follow through. Well, there's no more motion in the series then. Some other source of motion takes over like gravity for example, that mm-hmm. takes over then um, because the hands, the club and the ball in themselves are essentially immobile. They don't have the causality of the series essentially. Now, Aquinas holds that these types of causal series cannot be without a primary and we're going to see what a primary cause is in this series, but it's these kinds of causal series that cannot be a primary. If you take away the mental agent from the stick stone series, there's no motion in the series. Just, um, you would have to substitute that with a different source of motion, something which originates the motion. Another example is the fire heats a pot, which heats the contents of the pot. The pot and its contents in themselves are not heated. They need to be brought to a source of heat that they can draw upon in order to be heated. And fire, just in virtue of what fire is, heats, gives off heat. It wouldn't be fire unless it gave off heat. A mental agent would not be a mental agent were it not able to induce motion. And this reveals something about primary causes and secondary causes in these types of causal series. A secondary cause in a per se causal series is something which doesn't possess the causality of the series, essentially. A primary cause does possess the causality of the series, essentially, because it has to originate that causality. So it has to have in itself the werewithal to originate the causality in the hand, the stick, and the stone. Or the fire has to have in itself the wherewithal to originate heat in the pot and in its contents. So a primary cause in this kind of causal series has that causality ex- essentially in virtue of what it is. And if you don't have that primary cause, you don't have a causal series. Yeah. Because that's where the causality for that series comes from. So it's very much a different type of series than the per-accidents causal series.
0: Great. Okay. That sounds good. Yeah. So, just uh, we're just talking about two kinds of possible causal series here. One is Mm -hmm. accidental, the other one's per se, or we could say essential. Yeah. And um, with the accidental, each um, causal link in the chain has the causality built in so they can pass it on to the next link.
1: That's the accidental
0: form. And that can go on forever, Mm -hmm. at least for Aquinas, those who uh, who like the Kalam cosmological argument Mm -hmm. today will deny that that kind of series can go on forever. But nevertheless, for Aquinas, that kind of series can go on forever, doesn't need a primary um, or first cause. But then with the per se um, Mm -hmm. causal series, you don't have built-in causality, which each link in the chain. Rather, Mm -hmm. the causality within the chain itself is derivative. It's borrowed. And each link in the chain has the causality it does only instrumentally. In so yes. far as mm-hmm. the causality that it does has is actually mm-hmm. the causal action of the primary cause Yeah. rather than yeah. kind of a built-in kind of causality that each link in the chain has.
1: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Uh, spot on. Another example is that, you know, the, the sun illuminates the moon, which illuminates, you know, the earth. Let's say if it's a full moon, it's nighttime. And it's not really the moon illuminating the earth it's the moon reflecting the light of the sun yeah Uh, so so the earth and the moon are both participating in the light of the sun the hand the stick and the stone or the hand the golf club and the golf ball are participating in the motion that the mental agent conveys um, to them and so per se ordered series essentially ordered series them must have a primary cause Otherwise, you just do not have causality in the series. The members don't have it in themselves yeah. uh, to uh, have that causality. They need something uh, fr- in which they participate for that causality. Now, we swing back to the De Ente Essentia here, because this lines up neatly with Thomas's division of things having uh, characteristics either as a result of their intrinsic nature uh-huh. or as a result of some extrinsic principle. Remember, you know, risibility in humans, we have that because of what we are, really. we have that intrinsically. Um, the illumination of the atmosphere by the sun, we have that extrinsically. Well, existence then, we've seen that essence and existence are distinct. Okay, do things have existence as a result of their intrinsic nature? No, because essence and existence are distinct. So existence is not possessed by things in which essence and existence are distinct. Uh in the way that, you know, the followers and sons possess paternity, the causality of begetting, okay? They possess that causality intrinsically in virtue of what they are, but we don't possess existence in virtue of what we are. So the the causality of our existence is not locatable within a per-accidents-ordered series. Mm -hmm. What about per-se-ordered series? In a per-se-ordered series, the causality that the members have, they don't have essentially, they simply participate in it. Well, what about our existence? We don't have that essentially, we simply participate in our existence. And if we simply participate in our existence, that means that existence is a causal feature locatable in a per se ordered series. Mm -hmm. And what do we infer about per se ordered series? If you do not have a primary cause, which essentially possesses the causality of the series, the mental agent inducing motion to the hand stick and stone the fire the heat to the pot and the contents if you don't have a primary cause which essentially has that causality you don't have a causal series Mm -hmm. we're thinking now existence is a type of causality if you don't have a primary cause which essentially has existence i.e whose essence is its existence you don't have a causal series of which existence is the causal power in other words you don't have things In which essence and existence are distinct you just do not have existence which participate in existence so unless you have a primary cause you don't have things in which essence and existence are distinct we do have things in which essence and existence are distinct in which case there is a primary cause whose essence is identical to its existence and just before we drop the mic um (laughs) remember stage two Thomas considers this hypothetical being whose essence is its existence. And what did he establish? It's one and unique, but also it's not material. It doesn't subsist in matter. It subsists in virtue of what it is. So we have a single, unique, immaterial source of all existence without which nothing would be. And if God has been understood to be anything, it's this...
0: Yeah, that's right. So uh, lots of questions come to mind. We'll have to have you back, Gavin. This is just been <laughs> so fun. But uh, I would love to have you come back and unpack how mm-hmm. we go from this being whose essence it is to exist, mm-hmm. you know, that doesn't have a distinction uh, between essence and existence, just pure existence itself. Yeah. Or as you say in the book, Essie Tantum. Um yep. How do we go from that? From the uh, biblical concept to the biblical conception of God, how does Aquinas uh, weave these Mm -hmm. two—the metaphysical conception with the biblical conception—that is a whole. And you address this in the book; you do it great. That's a whole separate question. But with the with the time that we have remaining Mm -hmm. here, gosh, this—the nature of a metaphysical argument, in my opinion, uh, it Mm -hmm. takes to to see the power of a metaphysical argument. You need time for it to bake in the oven, right? You need it. Yeah. Need to let the principles kind of get absorbed into your mind. And yeah. because it's, when it comes to these principles, it's really a matter of, of kind of an intellectual seeing, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Because they're basic first mm-hmm. principles. So, uh, um, for me, the longer you think about an argument, like the one Aquinas offers in De Ante, the uh, Dante, the more powerful it becomes. It, it, it mm-hmm. like ages like a good wine, right? It gets better yeah. with time the more you think about it. So, uh, it seems to me that this is such a powerful metaphysical argument. So in the time we have remaining, let me just ask you, what do you think is the biggest objection to uh, accepting the conclusion for, for this argument?
1: Yeah, spot on. I think the biggest objection to this argument is um, the, the objection which would say that this kind of metaphysical reasoning is impossible. That you just can't do it. Yeah. Okay. Uh. Which, which explains why I've devoted a lot of my time to the thought of Immanuel Kant, because mm. um, Kant was very famous for setting out to clip the wings of the rationalist metaphysicians. Really, it was Leibniz that he had in mind. And uh, but Kant very famously wanted to show that um, metaphysics that go- goes beyond the bounds of sense, to use Strawson's um, language, is impossible. And so. There's a kind of Kantianism, not the Kantianism that I would adopt, but there's a certain strain of Kantianism which would say that this kind of metaphysical reasoning is impossible. Uh, We have to remain within the bounds of sense, Uh, otherwise we have transgressed uh, the proper domain of metaphysics. I think... Uh, objections inspired by that so you've got that you've got the logical more logical positivist sort of objections mm-hmm. that you know any use of terms which goes beyond you know our observation terms or protocol sentences um is a misuse of terms, mm-hmm. uh, and we're using terms you know unintelligibly i think they're all the strongest um objections to this argument so in other words um it's something that we sort of observed earlier on that this isn't apologetics, this isn't just finding an argument for God, this is actually coming out as a fruit of metaphysics. So something which attacks metaphysics per se, is just going going to be like weed killer, it's just going to if you destroy it at the roots, you destroy anything that grows from the roots, and this this proof grows out of the roots of metaphysics. And it seems to me that, you know, strains of Kantianism, logical positivism, they're just attacking the roots of metaphysics. And so I think that's the, that's where the strongest objections are coming from.
0: Yeah. So if you're gonna, if you're going to um resist this argument, it's not like some of the other arguments that are popular today for the existence of mm-hmm. God, you know, just uh, you know, um, arguing over some scientific fact or something like that, right? Yeah. If you're yeah. if you're going to resist this argument, you really got to get your hands dirty in mm. in the metaphysics, yeah. and yeah. that's really where this argument is is this the warf around this argument is going to be fought, yeah. and and fortunately mm-hmm. <laughs> for those of us who have studied this for a long time, <clears throat> um, that is encouraging because mm-hmm. at least it seems to me that the metaphysics upon which this argument stands are strong, are very strong.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I think so. I mean, it's the, the, the actual metaphysics. I mean, it, it's it's not just focused on this argument. It's an entire systematic um, metaphysics. And, and, and that's what you have to tackle. Now, fair enough. I mean, not, not even in the German idealist tradition, but think Scotus, Occam, all yeah. their medieval metaphysicians provide alternatives by that's which right. this argument can can be rejected you know so i mean you you get to you even get alternative you know metaphysics there that can object to this argument but uh it is as you say it's going to be a metaphysical wrestling match which is good because i mean thomas you know is you know quite a you know a, a talented metaphysician that's right that's right yeah
0: yeah i mean for me yeah that's l- let's take it metaphysical <laughs> that's exactly where where yeah. you know we we want to uh, hash this out anyway um, yeah. So finally, uh, something I have to mention here, when you mm. when you think about these arguments, Aquinas's arguments, even even the arguments he makes in in his Summa Theologica, um, mm. the objection that always comes up nowadays is this idea of existential inertia. Can you mm. just I- explain quickly what what is the existential inertia? Yeah. And how do we overcome it?
1: Yeah, okay. So the existential inertia objection um sort of it's come up recently um especially since Fieser started, you know, defending uh, variations of this argument. Um and it's come up recently because in Fieser's presentation of it um he points out that uh the causes and effects in per se causal series have to be concurrent with each other. Okay, there ha- has to be some sort of concurrence. So later later effects um within uh, the series have to be uh, concurrent with earlier causes um such that the later effects wouldn't come about were it not uh, were they not to come about simultaneously with the activity of earlier causes and this is something just on, on a scholarly issue this is something which isn't actually a feature of thomas's uh, metaphysics of per se causal series it's a feature of scotus's metaphysics of per se ordered series in the de primo principio scotus outlines three features of essentially ordered series and one of the features is that in essentially ordered series all the members of the series have to act simultaneously so that if you don't have a first cause you don't have any other causes in the series yeah. so that's where this concurrent uh, objection comes about and the existential inertia objection um it came from graham oppe and is later being developed by joseph schmidt mm-hmm. um is that um well no hold on a minute things can just get existence keep existence, and they'll keep that existence not because of the concurrence of some earlier cause, but just because there's nothing which comes along to, you know, stop them having existence.
0: So it's like Newton's inertial law. Yeah. An object stays in motion until it's interacted with something else
1: yeah more or less something like that um and so now you find early versions of this in the ancient greek atomists you find um a notion of this in spinoza with his you know canatus ascendi the striving to be but it's been very much an unexplored sort of uh, position um in the literature and um unfortunately because it's come up um within the context of you know arguments for the existence of god the discussion of it hasn't been detached from that argumentation which means really there hasn't been an opportunity to explore the metaphysics of existential inertia independent of sort of back and forth on arguments for the existence of god and i say that's unfortunate because um as we were just pointing out if we're going to ch- if we're going to challenge these arguments we need to get you know deep into the metaphysics, and if we don't have a metaphysics of existential inertia, we just have it being you know sort of used to kind of attack just this as argument. An yeah, yeah. It, it's difficult to deal with it now. So I published an article um on existential inertia, which is it's now in the collected articles book, and I also sort of engaged with it in my defence of the first way Aquinas' first way as well. And the point that I make is that existence. Um, doesn't behave like an inertial property. If we take typical inertial properties, you know, Oppie talks about, you know, color properties. Mm -hmm. Color properties, let's say, you know, the color, you know, the color of the fabric of a chair, okay? So a chair is dyed a certain color. It'll remain that color until it's dyed a different color. You know, you don't need to have the efficient cause of the dyeing of the chair present to it in order for it to remain red instead of green. Okay, so inertial properties, you know, like that, they presuppose an existing subject in which they subsist. So the, um, the 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 die of the chair presupposes the chair in which it subsists. So the die remains because the chair remains. Uh-huh. Okay, it has something in which to subsist. Now, does existence? If existence were inertial, an inertial property, it would have to presuppose a subject in which yeah. to subsist, but. Aquinas' notion of essay doesn't behave like that. Mm -hmm. Aquinas' essay doesn't presuppose a subject in which to exist. Rather, all subjects presuppose essay in order to exist. So whatever you want to say about essay, it can't behave as an inertial property because inertial properties presuppose a pre-existing subject, whereas the act of existence establishes the subject um, outright. So that if the subject didn't have existence, you just wouldn't have subsistence and insofar as the subject doesn't have existence essentially it requires that cause for its existence so long as it exists
0: excellent well that's a great first pass obviously it's a big subject and maybe we'll have to have you back on to talk about existential inertia specifically oh yeah Um, happy
1: to do so yeah
0: yeah so just with phaser i have heard phaser clarify i mean he in in response to criticisms phaser has said you know the essential feature of a per se Ordered series is not simultaneity; it's rather mm. instrumentality. Yeah, um, that mm. each that each link in the chain has the causality instrumentally. Um, yeah. Mm. So I have seen him clarify that in in yeah. certain places, but anyway. Yeah. Um, so Gavin, man, mm. thanks so much. This has been so much fun. But Be- before we say goodbye here, what are you up to now? Like, what are you working on recently?
1: Yeah. So I'm um, plugging away at my resurrection book. Um, you know, I'm deep oh, in the we. Yeah, deep in the weeds of uh, 20th century uh, scripture uh, scholarship, you know. So the 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 major chapters of the book have been written. where I go through the whole metaphysics of the resurrection, um, and so now I kind of have gone back to the introduction and just into 20th century scripture scholarship and commentary and everything. And I'm learning Greek just to do that. And oh, <laughs> it's it's like you know the, the the 20th century scripture scholarship. It's like the wild west. I mean, people yeah. could say anything they wanted. <laughs> they kind of absolutely, with yeah. Um, so I'm, I'm I'm deep in the weeds of that. Um, as I say, um, I've signed a book contract, but I need to keep that sort of hush hush. Um, but there is a book contract, and there's a book on the way. Um, there's possibly another book on the way, kind of an introductory book on the five ways. It's looking like a possibility. Um, what else am I working on? I've been contracted to write a chapter um, for another book on um, God, Aquinas on God and creation and simplicity uh, in the Summa Contra Gentiles. Um, and I've got an MMA fight in less than three weeks uh, oh, coming geez. up. So I'm training <laughs> for that as well.
0: So what, at what level MMA are we talking oh, here? Is this
1: just... Yeah. So I'm 40 years old, so it's a novice fight, you know, so uh, it's, okay. uh, weekend warrior sort of stuff you know all hobby, right. that sort of stuff yeah
0: all right great well hey gavin thanks for coming on thank for christ this has been an absolute blast and mm. man anytime you want to come back uh as soon as you are ready to talk about this new book that's mm. sh- uh, veiled in secrecy uh, i'd love uh to uh, find out what that is and and uh get a preview of it here if if you'd be willing to do so so
1: absolutely yeah no problem
0: Yeah, thanks for uh, all your work. Like I said, uh, off air here, it's been super influential in in my own thinking when Mm. it comes to the thought of Aquinas. So keep chugging along. I mean, you are obviously someone who is uh, producing a lot of material. So uh, just keep it up, man. I really appreciate it.